The scripture reading today is 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. We pray one more time. And Father, we thank you for loving us. Uh, we thank you for sending Jesus uh, to come and pursue us and find us um, and bring us into your family. Uh, Lord, show us um, the beauty of the gospel again this morning. Would you teach us? We need you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hey, have we look around? I know we hate doing this, but how do we look around? It's a little, a little crazy, isn't it? Like, what are we doing? Um, there's billions of people gathered together today all around the globe um, because a man died and then rose from the dead. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still doing this. It's, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? Um, we're... We're in this series in 1 Timothy that helps us, gives us some instructions on how to do this uh, because it's a little crazy <laughs> um, and we need help and we, um, we need instruction. We're ankle deep into 1 Timothy. Um, remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He's an ambassador. He's a, a representative of Jesus. He's been sent by him to to speak on his behalf and to give instructions on his behalf. Uh, he's writing to his protege, Timothy, and the rest of the church in Ephesus, and he's giving them instructions on how they ought to behave as the household of God. He's giving them instructions on how to conduct themselves as the church of the living God, which is incredible. It's important to note that uh, receiving instructions on how to behave in a household aren't always accepted easily, right? Um, I, most of us in the room have experience of being part of a, being part of a family. Um, and so you'll know from firsthand experience that uh, 
children don't always love instructions, <laughs> right? Children tend to push back on instructions, uh, but a loving parent's job is to give instructions and to discipline and to lovingly shape their children. And so Paul's instructions here, um, it's not just to get everyone to get along, right? Um, it's actually to lovingly correct and inform and instruct them, and not everyone loves that. Um, in fact, at the end, very end of the chapter, as uh, Liddy just read, Paul gives a couple guys over to Satan so that they can learn not to blaspheme, right? Jeepers. <laughs> we'll get to that. But his instructions disrupt at times, right? His instructions rock the boat a little bit because we, we tend to, to say we want to do it this way, but then God's word, which Paul will later say is breathed out by God to give us instructions and to correct us and to show us how to be righteous, it, it often comes along and says, do it this way. And this is, this is what's good for you, so trust me. And that takes humility, doesn't it? Um, it, it takes letting go of our preferences and submitting to, to his way and, and praying often and every day, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Um, and we do that with wisdom, we do it with prayer, we do that with contextualizing, but it's not always easy, right? But thankfully, thankfully, look at verse 5 again in verse 1. Paul makes it very clear from the top of this letter that, that's giving instructions and, uh, and kind of difficult things we might not prefer. The aim of these instructions is what? Love. The, the aim or another, another word is, is goal or the result, right? The result that Paul is trying to produce with these apostolic instructions is love. And that, that is the Greek word agape. It's this Christ-like love. It's this, this sacrificial kind of love that Jesus has for his people. It's a love that, that lays down yourself for your, for your friends, right? And, and that's what he wants this community, this family, this, this church to produce and experience, is Christ-like gospel love, which flows, Paul says in verse 5, it, it issues from a heart that is pure, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, right? So right there, that's the, the, the goal of the letter, that, that this household would have pure hearts and a good conscience and a sincere faith, and what flows from that is Christ-like gospel love. In other words, he wants us to experience the love of God, which comes from being right in the center of God's will and, and walking according to his ways that he has set out for us. That, that's really what having a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith means, it looks like, right, to be right in the center of God's will and to walk according to his ways, which is why, I'm not reteaching, last, last week Alan was like kind of part A and this is part B of chapter one, so there's a bit of overlap, but that's why Paul then begins to talk about the law in verses eight to 11, and he says the law is good if it's used properly, right, which is the, the point of, first, of the first chapter, the first part of the chapter, that there are certain people in this church in Ephesus that aren't using it properly that they're, they're leading people away from these things, actually. That they weren't using the law properly, as verse 11 says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. Right? So you, in, in those verses, you get a sense that there's these two things that we kind of hold in tension in a way. That there's the law that God gave to his people in the Old Testament that, that says, this is how you ought to behave, which is similar to what Paul says. This is why I'm writing here. But the law is like, here's how you ought to behave. The, the law says, here's what, it, here's what it means to be in my family. And then there are, there, there are essentially rules and boundaries, right, that, that God's children must stay within. That's how we kind of read the Old Testament, right? And that's 
Paul says that's good if it's used properly in accordance with the gospel, which says that Jesus, the Son of God, has died on our behalf, right? He's, he's paid the penalty of our sins. He's paid the, the, the penalty for us not measuring up to the law. So the gospel says Jesus has brought us into God's family. He's, he's drawing us near to him. And when we are near to him, that's when we experience his love. Right? That, that's how when we experience being a true child of God, that's when we experience the, his community of love. Right? But, but here's where we get things a little confused. Right? Because New Testament Christians, we, it's hard to understand the law. Right? We, we get a little confused when we're understanding the, the, the gospel of grace and the law. And Romans kind of, Paul's difficult to understand sometimes. And, and we read in Romans 7 that we died to the law through the body of Christ. It's, it says that we've been released from the law, that, that we, we, we serve in this new way because the gospel of grace, we've died with Christ and we've been raised with him and we've been set free. So, but, but what does that mean? Are, are we now free to do whatever we want? There, there are no more rules anymore. There's no more boundaries. Of course, that's not what that means. Um, here's an example that a lecturer of mine gave to, to help us understand this. Um, imagine sheep in a field, right? We're surrounded by sheep in the country. You've all seen this before. Uh, and Jesus uses sheep as an analogy for his people. But imagine sheep in a farmer's field. And as you know, there are hedges and fences around the field that keep the sheep in their fold. And, and think of the hedges and the fences as the law, right? God gave his people the law as a boundary to stay within, and as his, his family were, were to remain in the field, were to remain in the center of his will, walking according to his ways, right? This is, this is what it looks like to live as, as the chosen people set apart in, in this world in relationship with God. Think of our sheep in the field analogies. 2023, and along comes the farmer of the sheep, uh, and he, he opens the, the gate of this field of sheep, and, and he he, he comes in, he's on his quad bike, and on the back of the bike, he has feed for the sheep. And if you know anything about, imagine he goes into the field and he doesn't close the gate behind him, uh, which if you grew up on a farm or you know anything about keeping animals, that's kind of breaking one of the top rules of keeping animals is always keep the gates closed, right? Because the animals could get out. They could, they could escape their, their boundaries and they'd be on the loose. But, but this farmer isn't concerned with closing the gate, because the shepherd of the sheep on the back of his quad bike is exactly what the sheep want the most, right? Which is food. They, they, he's, he's there to feed them. So instead of the sheep darting out of the gate and escaping the boundaries of the farmer's field, they flock to the shepherd because they know that he has what they most want. So in a sense, the, the boundaries of the field become irrelevant and unneeded. And that gives us a sense of, of, the, of our relationship with the law as followers of Jesus and as recipients of his grace. When we're located with him, he, he doesn't say, oh, the law doesn't matter anymore. Like, go wherever you please. Rather, when we are with him, the hedges become irrelevant. They're not needed, in a sense, because we're drawn to him. We're drawn into the center of the field. We're no longer trying to find our ways of escaping the hedge of the law. We're drawn to the one who fulfills the law completely. So we're released from the law in that sense. We're no longer, it's no longer needed because we're drawn to Jesus. It's not that those boundaries aren't there anymore. It's just that we don't need them to keep us in anymore because we're right in the center of the field with our shepherd Jesus. 
It's not that obedience doesn't matter anymore, because Jesus talks a lot about obedience, doesn't he? When, we, when you're abiding with him, when you're loving him, he says, that looks like obeying. But when we're drawn to him, and we love him, and we're obeying him, we're right in the center of what it means to be called God's people. And it's right there, when we're abiding with him, and we're feeding on him, that's when we have a pure heart and a good conscience, conscience and a sincere faith. That's, when those, that's where those things are produced, right? when we abide and stay with him. And it's right there that this community of agape love is experienced. So with this letter, Paul is trying to draw us to Christ our shepherd, where we walk according to his ways and we experience his love alongside one another. What happens when we stop feeding on Jesus though, right? And when we stray away from him, well, we, we wander away from him. We stop believing that he is who we most want and need. That, that's when we go back to trying to escape out of the hedges again. And we push outside of God's ways. And did you notice that last week when Alan looked at that list of sinners, which isn't meant to be comprehensive, but did you notice that it, it really resembles the Ten Commandments? Did you notice that? Profaning God, not honoring your father and father and mother, not living sexually pure lives within the confines of marriage that God has set out, not loving others, murdering, not, not controlling your tongue. And then he says, whatever else is contrary to the truth, says that in order to make it all encompassing. These things we do still take seriously. But when you're drawn to the shepherd in the middle of the field, it's not that you're free to do whatever you want now. Go wherever you please. It's just that those boundaries are no longer a burden because we're right in, right in the center of his will, with the shepherd, walking according to his ways, not pressing through the boundaries of the law anymore. Does that make sense? But look at verse 11. This is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. What does that mean? If you hear one thing today, hear this. This verse 11 means that you can't earn your way into the middle of the field. Right? Sheep don't get there because of their best behavior, because they've ticked every box of the law. No, the shepherd doesn't gather together those who have put their lives together to join him for the special meeting in the middle of the field. Actually, the Bible tells us the opposite, right? That he gathers together sinners, those who don't deserve to be there, those who can't help but to push their way out of the hedges. Right? The gospel is good news for sinners, not for the righteous. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just say you're very, very welcome. Let me remind you that you are in a room filled with former non-Christians. Every single one of us. Everyone in this room were formerly doing other things. Some of us were atheists. Raise your hand if you were an, if you just, I didn't believe anything before I came to Jesus. Yeah. Raise your hand if, if you'd say, before I was a Christian, I was religious, but I didn't really understand the gospel. Lots of us. Raise your hand if you'd say, I became a Christian when I was a, when I was a child within my, my confines of my family. Raise your hands if, if you became a Christian when you're an adult later in life. Maybe you don't want to raise your hand for this one, but maybe you'd say, man, my life was messy. <laughs> like, th this all sounds great, but you don't, you don't understand what I've done. And yet Jesus pursued me, and now I'm following Jesus. It's amazing. 
So if you're not a Christian, you're, you're not surrounded by people who were born as followers of Jesus. You, you were fo- you're, you're surrounded by people who were once all walking away from God, every single one of us, but at some point, through these God-ordained circumstances, we were gripped by the gospel. Right? We're, we're gripped by what Christ has accomplished on our behalf on the cross, and our entire lives change. Right? Which is why we gather here on Sundays, is to celebrate. Right? We, we celebrate as sinners who have been saved by the grace of Jesus, we celebrate the, go- the gospel of the glory of our blessed God, which is exactly what Paul erupts into in verse 12. And so if this, this is kind of part two of last week, if last week Alan showed us that a healthy church must guard the gospel, but by making sure that its leaders and its teachers guard the gospel truth and encourage their people to confront and confess sin, well, this next section, it builds on that. It says we should also celebrate the gospel. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted, acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So verses 12 to 15 are really a description of the gospel. He's explaining the gospel. The gospel is not that God has gathered together people who have done a good job of obeying his commands. It's not what church is. The, the gospel is not that God is, has gathered together those who have proved, proven themselves to be faithful to his ways. The opposite of the gospel is what Paul describes. The opposite of that is what Paul describes in the gospel here. The gospel is that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. This is what, we've, this is what Jesus himself has said all through the gospel of Luke, right? Remember Luke, Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is, is at that dinner party with the tax collectors and the sinners? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Paul says, that's me. I'm the leader of that group. (laughs) He calls sinners to his table, which is amazing news, right? But as we we read from what Jesus said and all throughout Scripture, he calls sinners not that we can continue on sinning, right? That's the, oh, the law doesn't matter anymore kind of point of view. We've been given grace, so now we can do whatever we want. That's not what the Bible teaches Jesus says, I've called you to repentance. Romans 6 says that that Christ's death and his resurrection becomes our death and our resurrection. He he saves us so that we can now walk in a newness of life. He calls us right into the center of his will to walk according to his ways. Like we, we now walk as citizens of his kingdom according to the king's ways. One of my favorite uh, epistles is, is 1 John. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, and now John, he's, he's, he's older by now. He's kind of this elderly father of the church. And he says in chapter 3, he says, he talks about being children of God and being born of God. And he says, you know that, that Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. 
and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. He, there's this like inevitability of becoming like Christ. So, so God, John uses that language of being born of God, becoming children of God to describe what happens in salvation because of the gospel, right? By the blood of Jesus shed on your, your behalf on the cross, right? Not because of anything that you've done, but, but solely because of what God has done for you, the result of being born of God is now we have his DNA in us. We become like him, and we begin to turn away from our sin and walk in righteousness, right? But the amazing part of all of that is he calls sinners to do that. And Paul uses himself as an example of what's happening here, and he describes the gospel in verses 12 to 17. So here's our main thing this morning. We're just going to unpack the gospel, right? And we're going to do that through asking a series of questions. Uh, the first question is, who is Paul? Right? We find the answer to that in verse 13, where he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a, a violent or an insolent opponent, a violent man. At the end of verse 15, he says, I was the foremost of sinners. I was the chief of sinners, the, the worst Again, this describes us, isn't it? doesn't it? Uh, or maybe what we used to be. A blasphemer, that's someone who speaks evil against Christ Jesus. That, that was Paul. He hated Jesus. He, he tried to get other people to blaspheme Christ. He was a persecutor of the church, of Christians. He, he was dead set against Christians in the church. In Galatians chapter 1, he, he says that he persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. He tried to wipe the church off the face of the earth. He wasn't just persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, Jesus told Paul, you're actually persecuting me when you're persecuting the church. And behind all that blasphemy and persecution of Jesus and his church, there was a violent man in Paul. Right, so the, the guy writing this letter to the church used to be the church's greatest threat. He, he devoted his life to arresting and killing Christians everywhere. In fact, Paul, when he was on his way to Damascus, he was on his way there to kill Christians when Jesus turned up and he met Christ. That's who Paul was. And then the next question is, well, well, what does God do with Paul? What does God do with people who are against him, these enemies? We, we expect punishment, right? We, we expect judgment from God. And God does judge Paul here, but he doesn't judge him like we'd expect. Verse 12, Paul says, he judged me as faithful. He, he judged me as faithful, even though that was the last thing I was, even, even though I was dead set against him with everything that I had. And so you might be thinking, well, how does that work? Isn't God meant to be just? Doesn't Paul deserve to be judged as, as the blaspheming, violent man that he is? And the answer is, yeah. He absolutely does. But this is the beautiful scandal of God's grace, that God doesn't ignore Paul's sin. Instead, he takes the punishment on himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The, the, the judgment of Paul's sin fell on Christ on the cross, even though he didn't deserve it, so that Christ's righteousness might be placed on Paul. It's what Calvin wrote in his institute. He said, this is the wondrous exchange made by, the bound, by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the Son of Man, 
he made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to the earth, he prepared for our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he clothed us with his righteousness. Because of Christ paying for Paul's unrighteousness on the cross, God now judges Paul as faithful. And Paul says in verse 12, he appointed me to his service. (laughs) He gave him a job. (laughs) Like how upside down is God's kingdom? We give jobs to people who meet our standards, right? We interview people at length to make sure they sign up to our set of values. God, on the other hand, brings in his enemies and appoints them to his service. He does things the opposite of what we do. In verse 13, he gives Paul mercy, partly because Paul acted ignorantly in unbelief. Like his sinfulness, it was just second nature to him. He didn't even question it. It was instinct. But even still, in verse 14, it says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. When Paul least deserved it, God's grace overflowed for him. What a beautiful phrase that is. Don't you love that? The the grace of the Lord overflowing for me. You get a couple pictures with that language. And the first one is the picture of of a river flooding over and breaking its banks. I spent my childhood in the Midwest in the United States, and you get these intense thunderstorms and heavy rain, and sometimes the, the streams and rivers would, would flood over and break the banks, and it could be devastating. Um, a, a flooded river can sweep everything along with it irresistibly, but John Stott says, here the river of grace brought with it not devastation, but blessing, in particularly the blessings of faith and love. Grace overflowed, and faith and love sprang up. Grace flooded with faith, a heart previously filled with unbelief. Grace flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hatred. Here, grace abounded to the chief of sinners. Floods over. The second image that kind of comes to mind is this grace being poured out, as some translations puts it, is this cup that's overflowing. Imagine yourself at a, at a dinner table and when the waiter comes along and fills up your glass, you expect them to fill it up and stop at the top. But imagine as they smile at you, you just keep pouring and your, your cup is overflowing and, and saturating everything on the table. You'd, you'd say, what are you doing? Would you stop? This is inappropriate. And so it is with the grace that overflows from our Savior. It, it's not really appropriate when you consider the judgment that our sins deserve. But that's how grace works. He's giving us what we least deserve. His grace overflows. And so the next question is, well, what did Paul do to deserve God's grace and mercy? And the answer is absolutely nothing. The only thing that Paul mentions about himself is his dreadfulness, is his sinfulness, what he's done to not deserve such love. So notice that when the grace of the Lord overflowed for Paul, 
He says it overflowed with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, not in Paul, in Jesus, right? So you see, the basis of Paul's salvation is what's found in Jesus, not what's found in Paul. That the basis of Paul's salvation is the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus, not the faith and love that are found inside Paul. That those things are placed there. They are gifts from Jesus that are placed in Paul. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. His grace is unconditional. That there's nothing in Paul that draws God to him. Paul's salvation originates in God and God alone, and the same is true for everyone in this room. You're not saved because of any condition inside you. We're saved solely on account of the sovereign grace of God. His grace is unconditional. Sheep do not earn their way into the center of the field. Paul's salvation is not based on what Paul does himself. It's based on what Christ has accomplished on the cross for him. His grace overflows with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How wonderful is his grace. And in verse 15, Paul gives the gospel in the simplest way he can. Right? Sometimes Paul can be complicated, can be difficult to understand, but sometimes he makes things really simple. In verse 15, here's the gospel. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's, that, that's the gospel. In one sentence, it tells us a lot about Jesus, right? First, it tells us that Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. Everyone in this room has a beginning, right? At one point, you didn't exist, and then some stuff happened, and then you did exist, right? That's not true of Jesus. He has no beginning, John's gospel calls him this beginningless word that, that became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus was sent. He came into the world. He came with a mission, with a purpose, and that purpose is to save sinners, to pursue lost sheep who have no hope of staying within the hedges. He didn't come to find sheep who are obeying the rules. He, he didn't come to reward those who are obediently staying within his boundaries, he came to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am the worst. Notice Paul doesn't say, I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. Paul hasn't lost his awareness of his desperate need of Jesus. The gospel hasn't puffed Paul up, and now he's writing to them from on high, and he says, you guys need to do better. Now he's coming in from the bottom, and he's saying, I'm with you. I get it. I, I, I'm one of you. I'm, 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 I, like you, am lost without Jesus. We must remember what he's done and what he's doing for his wandering sheep, and we must celebrate with hope the gospel that, he's had, that, that we have in him. That, that's, those, are the good, those are the kind of leaders that you're looking for in a church. Because in the gospel, we are opened up, and what's revealed is the desperate need of Jesus. Our desperate need of God's grace, not just once, but every single day. And so in one sense, the gospel doesn't make Paul better. In one sense, it does. It heals him completely. But in another sense, what's, it, it reveals this desperate need of Jesus. It, it, it makes him realize how he needs to stay with Jesus, how, how much he needs to feed on Jesus. 
John Stott wrote, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody else could be worse. Verse 15 is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. They say, I'm the worst. Stott says, we we may begin like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. But we end like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, the sinner. You see, maturing in the faith, it doesn't mean you grow out of your need for God's grace in your life. The opposite happens. It actually, you have this growing awareness of your need for repentance, a growing awareness of your sin and your ever need of a savior. And so we celebrate what Christ has done and is doing for us. And so in verse 16, Paul moves from this description of the gospel, and he also gives this deeper purpose of the gospel. And he says that, I'm a prototype. You can look to me and see what God has done and see how this demonstrates God's patience. Tells you about this Savior. In verse 16, it says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is great news, right, for anyone who's ever thought, God would never save me. For for anyone who might say, this all sounds great, but you don't know what I've done. You, You don't know what I've thought. I've hated God too much. I've pushed against him for too long. I've turned away from him for too long. Surely there's no way back. I'm too deep. If you think you're beyond the mercy of God, then listen to Paul when he says, God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and to make him the chief missionary to the church to show that God is patient and he loves, and he beckons sinners to believe in him for eternal life. No matter who you are or what you've done, these words are worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Just like you. Just like me. Even like Paul. So not only does his grace demonstrate his patience, It also does something in us, and it leads to worship, which is what Paul erupts into in verse 17. This is his response to his reflections on the gospel, and he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He can't help himself here. I imagine Paul sitting wherever he is. We don't know exactly. Maybe in a tent in Macedonia somewhere. And he's writing this letter to his friends, to Timothy, to the, gospel, to, to the church in Ephesus. And he's, he's, he's writing about the gospel. He's, he's recalling what God has done for him. The chief of sinners. He's remembering what, what his, his dreadful past. And it can't help but respond in praise. And this is exactly what should happen in each of us when we fill our hearts and our minds with the gospel. We remember what God has done for us, 
how his grace and his love and his mercy overflowed into us when we least deserved it. When we remember who he is and who we are, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, what he's brought us into. Like Paul, we should be overwhelmed and we, from receiving such mercy and grace and we should erupt in praise. When's the last time you couldn't help but break out in praise and thanksgiving like Paul here? Let me ask it another way. When's the last time you just sat and reflected or wrote or sang about the truths of the gospel? When's the last time you sat and you, you reflected on the, the depths of your past, the depths of your depravity, and the heights of his grace? This merciful Savior deserves our praise. Paul says he's the king of ages. He's immortal. He never grows tired. He, he never grows weary. He never changes. Death and decay will never touch him. He's royal and eternal. His glory is invisible and incomparable. He, he's beyond the limits of what we can ever imagine, and no one ever compares to him. He's the only God, and he will receive honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? This is the appropriate response of the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. We should erupt in, in worship and thanksgiving. Verse 12, I thank him for what he's done for me. I thank him for strengthening me. I thank him for choosing me, for loving me, for pouring out his grace and his mercy on me, a sinner that did not deserve any of these things. What, what bold worship should flow from the gospel. We've been, through the blood of Jesus, we've been brought in to God's family. We've been adopted in. We were once his enemies, now God's chosen people. Amazing news, but we're still living as exiles in this world. It's important to know that. The, the world continues to be hostile to Christ and his church. Opposition and challenges will come. But God is the king of ages. He, he, he will lead, guide, protect, purify, sanctify, and preserve his church. And so we should celebrate the gospel. And lastly, lastly, as we end here, a couple minutes left, we see from the last few verses of chapter one, not only does our church need leaders who guard the gospel, and not only should we celebrate the gospel, we must also fight for the gospel. It's something to, to celebrate and rejoice in, but it's something to take really seriously. So read eight, verses 18 to 20, and we'll be done. Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of the faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Right, so in light of who God is, in light of his gracious purposes, Paul then gives Timothy this one more exhortation to wrap up the chapter. Fight for the gospel, Timothy. He must engage in battle. He must engage in, in the good warfare for the sake of the truth. 
And Paul gives us this example of these, a couple of leaders. Most scholars believe that these were former elders in Ephesus who have made a shipwreck of the faith by teaching the opposite of the gospel and teaching a false doctrine. And they steered the church into the rocks. And verse 20 is almost certainly referring to church discipline. Excommunication from the church. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. These two men who were cast out of the church to show that they were uh, against the gospel and, and teaching opposite and separated from Christ with the hope and the prayer that they would realize their error and return to Christ. So, so even in that, Paul's aim is, is this love. Pa- Paul says, listen, there are going to be times when you and the church will have to take severe measures to fight for the gospel. And you must take them because nothing is more important. It's striking, isn't it? After this glorious description of the grace of God, you then have the seriousness of making sure your, your, teacher, your leaders are teaching it. Because you see, grace, it doesn't, it doesn't end accountability. God graciously brings us from being enemies who wanted nothing to do with him. He brings us to being members of his household, co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of God. But then what should happen is we respond to God's grace and we walk like his children. And our leaders must teach that grace. Our lives now should be the living proof that the truth of the gospel has taken root in our hearts. We should turn away from our sinful flesh and we should walk in righteousness as we abide with Jesus. Grace does not end accountability. And so in the church, it's important that we contend for the gospel. We, we must fight for it in our lives as individuals. We must fight for it in the church. Paul says, whatever you do, hold on to the gospel. It's the only thing that unites the church. Nothing else unites the church except for the gospel. It's, it's the only thing that sustains God's people during difficult days. It's worth guarding. It's worth defending. It's worth fighting for because it's worth celebrating forever. Hopefully that makes a little bit sense of like, this is crazy. What are we doing? It's the gospel. We're responding to the gospel. Responding to what Christ has done on our behalf. Now we walk as his imperfect sheep feeding on the shepherd. Um, It's messy. It's not perfect, uh, but he is. And so we contend for the gospel. We fight for it and we celebrate it. Just stand with me. We'll pray.